Welcome back to Brian Boitano's favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Education Manager. So today we're going to be speaking with one of our most special guests ever, Maestro Larry Ratcliff. Larry has had a rich and varied career as a conductor. He was a longtime music director with a place that I worked for many years, the San Antonio Symphony, as well as Mike's hometown orchestra, the Rhode Island Philharmonic. He has guest conducted all over the U.S. and the world, including right here in Kansas City. But at least among us musicians, he's perhaps best known as the legendary educator, mentor, and conductor of the Rice University Shepherd School of Music Symphony Orchestra. Uh, it's certainly where Mike and I got to know Larry and um, have uh, just some incredible memories of music making and a lot of fun being had. And and I, I think what's kind of cool specifically for me is I've gotten to work with Larry um, in an education setting, so in school, and then I've gotten to work with Larry um, playing and working with the San Antonio Symphony. Um, and I'm really excited to talk with him a little bit about, you know, what that dynamic is like shifting from um, school to a more a professional setting. And uh, I'm certainly glad that I had that opportunity. Well, Larry is certainly, without a doubt, one of the most distinguished conductors, both professionally and educationally speaking, in the world. And I remember when I was a young student a long time ago, a long <laughs> time ago, I had the privilege of doing a couple conducting workshops through the League of American Orchestras. Uh, then it was the American Symphony Orchestra League with Larry. And not only did I learn a lot from him, being able to watch him with each individual student was just remarkable. I learned so much in those few short day periods. I really wanted to study with Larry at Rice. Unfortunately, when uh, I was in the process of going to grad schools, Larry had no openings because he's very much in demand and he only has three openings at a time at Rice and everyone was returning the following year. But um, I'm so glad that we get the opportunity to talk to him again. And maybe I'll go back to school one of these days and study with him because that would be <laughs> quite an honor, quite an honor to learn from one of the masters of our trade. Well, uh, Larry's impact on the landscape of music here in the United States truly cannot be overstated. And, uh, you know, when he's been here in Kansas City uh, to conduct, it's not like any other guest conductor experience, really. It's it's like our, you know, our old friend has come to town. He knows practically everyone in this orchestra, either because they were a student at Rice or worked with him uh, at, at Michigan or, or somewhere else. So it's it, it, it's an incredible experience. I remember a whole bunch of us had dinner together a couple of times when he was here. I mean, just always uh, amazing to reconnect. And uh, for me personally, um, he has been a friend and a teacher and a mentor of mine, you know, for as long as I can remember. And I, I still can remember now the first time we met uh, would have been at my audition uh, for Rice uh, University and and he came in, and I, I remembered, you know, having seen him conduct the Rhode Island Philharmonic as a kid, and um, you know, he and and well, everyone there was just was just so welcoming. But um, yeah, I have so many special special memories, pieces uh, that we played together. Actually, Stephanie and I uh, both played uh, with Larry the first time I ever played the the original 13-player uh, version of Appalachian Spring, which is still one of my favorite pieces. 
that that is an experience with Larry uh, I will never forget. So I could go on and I will. We have we have time to talk about all of these stories, but uh, I want to introduce our wonderful guest today, our friend, our mentor, our teacher, living legend, man of the hour, Larry Ratcliffe. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, I'm 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 uh, honored to be here. I am extraordinarily embarrassed by all of these way too lovely comments <laughs> uh, and remarks, which really proves only one thing: that if you're old enough, uh, you know, you you might just have the privilege uh, to have an impact uh, in some small way. So. Thank you so much, uh, each of you, for inviting me to Kansas City, so to speak. Uh, your orchestra has always been one of my favorites uh, to lead. And uh, short of that, this is great being here with you. Well, it's really great having you, Larry. It's re I'm re really looking forward to talking with you today. So, listen, there are roughly 45, 50 major American orchestras to the best of your knowledge, is there even one of those orchestras that does not employ someone that you have taught, either at Rice mm. or elsewhere in your career? Because you've worked with young musicians, not just at Rice, but at music festivals all over the country and the world. Is there any of them left that don't have a Larry Ratcliffe alumni? Well, uh, thank you, Jason. As, as I was saying, this is one of the benefits of age. Uh, <laughs> if... If you conducted enough schools and enough summer music festivals, you, you, you've had the opportunity to annoy a variety, a plethora <laughs> of musicians. Uh, so my, my sense is uh, that the Shepherd School alums uh, particularly uh, are doing so wonderfully, proudly, I can say. They all had extraordinary private teacher instruction, which is, of course, the single most important part of an education. Their lives were changed by our teachers. And I was, frankly, not to be overly humble, but I've always felt and continue to that I'm sort of the lucky, the lucky one that gets to work with these gifted students who are drawn to the Shepherd School, frankly, because of those teachers. Well, I... I'm curious, kind of along those lines, it, it must be an amazing feeling to, you know, work with these students in one setting and then years later go and guest conduct somewhere and and see them thriving in a professional setting. What it, it's something unique to university professors, honestly. I mean, you know, like you see these kids when they're when they're developing and they're and they're growing up and they're really honing their skills, and then you also, as a, as a guest conductor and and a music director, get to see them as professionals, and that has to be a really cool feeling. Yeah, it. Thank you, Stephanie. It it's extraordinary, uh, really. Uh, first, it's the personal aspect to see someone maturing in their life and becoming a grown-up and doing grown-up <laughs> things uh, is so touching. Uh, the other couple things that I notice, and this is mostly from an educational, pedagogical sense, 
is that sometimes I might notice one of our alums in X orchestra, certainly not Kansas City, but X orchestra, uh, looking as if they were mailing it in, mm-hmm. uh, if you pardon the expression. Mm-hmm. And I've always, at appropriate break time, gone over and said, so, so-and-so, how's it going? And get a bit of a conversation. And I might say, you know, you look a little differently to me, but not in ways I wanted to see. Uh, as you've progressed. Well, I'm very busy. You know, I've got 11 children now. Uh, <laughs> I, I practice four minutes a day. And I, and I always say, I don't doubt any of that. And those are wonderful accomplishments. But don't be afraid to recall why it was you fell in love with this thing in the first place. And the more you can learn about yourself by keeping your professional, artistic, if you will, commitment intact the best you can. I mean, no doubt your life has become very complicated. I, I want you to be mindful of that. Uh, and I just think that's so crucial. The other slightly pedagogical issue is on occasion... If there were certain things about someone's playing that they hadn't completely addressed while they were at school, certain issues in their playing, there are cases when I've noticed those issues remain, even as a job-winning professional. Mm. And when that's the case, I most lovingly find a time at a break And again, certainly not in Kansas City, but uh, say, you know, Mr. Joe, how's your practice going on your soft playing? (laughs) Uh, Because I remember while you were in school, that was a big issue for you. And I I certainly wouldn't say, and I noticed that now too. I I will sort of leave it at that and leave that thought in the cosmos in the most caring, loving way, because I feel like all of you tadpoles are are still on the trajectory, as am I, I hope. And we need to be reminding each other when we can, in a safe way, uh, that we are responsible independently of the trajectory. Hmm. When you don't have necessarily... Miss Bicey sitting next to Mr. Gordon in Kansas City, reminding him of a few things. But we hope that he continues to hear her voice in his head as a reminder. So in addition to the immense joy of seeing people on their way in their lives with new lives as professional musicians and and grown-ups, I feel I still have a slightly added parenthetical job, which is to perhaps remind them safely of a few of these things subtly, I hope. Well, and I think that one of the reasons that you're able to do that is the environment that you create in school. And there's such a level of trust and um your students value your opinion so much that 
that I think it says a lot about you that you can go on and 10 or 15 years later, see them and, and, you know, be able to address that and it be received in a way that's out of nothing, but, you know, love and appreciation. I, well, and that's certainly a credit to you. Well, th- th- thank you, Stephanie, for saying that. I, I, as you probably know by now, uh, conductors uh, actually don't make any sounds. <laughs> Jason <laughs> and, says that often. Yes. Yeah. At least we shouldn't. Yes. <laughs> right. And and so it's easy to create an atmosphere of wonder when the room is so full of talent and so full of positive spirit. I've always felt, and I don't know how to surf, but I've always felt like I'm just on the surfboard of musical life when I'm at school, that I'm just riding these waves with this gifted, uh, if I might continue on this dull metaphor, with this gifted ocean of, of skill and, and kind-heartedness in an environment where the faculty is so extraordinarily supportive of the students and of what we're doing on our surfboards. So I just feel blessed for that. Well, can I just add that, I mean, I didn't get a chance to work with you at Rice, but I have seen you work with other conducting students and me, of course. But I, one of my great experiences with Larry was watching him when I was the assistant conductor out at National Repertory Orchestra in Colorado, and he came out to guest conduct there. And one of I think your absolute best skills that transfers not just from school, but with every orchestra you work with is that you take the time to get to know the musicians you, that you're working with by name. You learn about them and who they are and what their dreams are, what their goals are. And I think you leave everyone with this feeling of this is a communal activity. And I think that's such an important lesson for all conductors to learn is, you know, some people get up there and especially young conductors, I could say this now because I'm no longer a young conductor, I'm a (laughs) middle-aged conductor. They get up there and they're so focused on what they're doing. And you're so good at at getting those young conductors out of that mind frame to think, you know, here we all are, we have this opportunity to do this together, to bring Beethoven to life together. And I think because you have that trust that you build up in a very quick amount of time, with an orchestra by getting to know them personally, that that everyone really feels bought in. And I think that's a special skill that, that all conductors should emulate. Oh, that's a very nice thing to say, Jason. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's people uh, doing important things with other people. And I know that I always felt better when I was playing if the conductor knew my name rather than yep. just calling me Timpani, <laughs> uh, and I, I think I felt uh, like I could do better. <laughs> uh, pardon the poor English, Mike, uh, Stephanie, sorry, Rice <laughs> University, but I thought I could do better uh, if I sensed that to some degree I was cared about. And maybe that's this is a leftover of someone else's influence for sure. Well, I, I think that's beautiful. And First of all, I want you to rest assured that, uh, and when we're saying Ms. Bizey, we're talking about Leon Bizey, the uh, wonderful flute player, legendary uh, flute pedagogue, and my teacher. 
uh, from Rice. Uh, so her her voice is continuously in my head, except for those times when you interrupt, and then your <laughs> voice is there, and then and then sometimes you argue with each other about which one of you has the more important thing to say to me inside <laughs> of my it. head as I'm playing, and then and then frequently when I'm when I'm uh, you know working, I I often have the moment where I wonder. Is Larry's voice in that other person's head because it doesn't it doesn't sound like it and it's it's frustrating me slightly. So <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for uh for implanting yourself there forever. It's a it's a it's a good voice. But I I, I do want to um uh follow this thread for a moment. You mentioned you played the timpani, and uh, I wanna talk a little bit about about how you how you got to be you where where you came from uh in your life and yeah i mean i i know of course that you you played percussion and and often joke about having a what is it a metronome duct taped to your head or you tell others to duct tape a metronome to their head and they they certainly should and you certainly do so talk a little bit about that well that's a thoughtful question mike and by the way there is <clears throat> medication <laughs> Uh, for this tripolar problem you might be having with our voices. Well, uh, I'm curious if Mike is having, if he hears your voice only when he's playing the flute or if he also hears it like when he's roasting a chicken or like cleaning uh, the bathroom. No, all the time. Larry's voice provides universal truth. It is not limited uh, to playing the flute. Well, uh, my, my deep apologies there. <clears throat> I think one of the advantages of being in the back of the orchestra is the fact that you play less than everyone else, uh, which initially might seem th that that's dull or boring. Uh, on the other hand, it gives you just the greatest opportunity to really pay attention. Uh, so... Somewhere along the way, early-ish on, Mike, I, I started just to play off the scores uh, in high school because uh, I knew counting 78 measures rest and uh, was important, but I, I sort of looked at the score and saw that everyone else was having a grand time making sounds. <laughs> and the only sound I was making was two, two, three, four, sixty-five, two, three, four. And so that, I think, Mike opened up my, at least an, a kind of awareness to what all was going on. I think one of my few skills, frankly, <laughs> is uh, that I'm a good student. And I pay attention. So somewhere early on, I started not only to bring a score, but I brought a notebook to rehearsals. Again, because I didn't have very much to do. <laughs> and I, I started just to take notes of, you know, aside from, oh, you know, whatever inappropriate things were traveling through my mind, I, I started to take notes on what was going on in the music and what the conductor was going after and what he or she was saying. Also, in my generation, if Jason says he's middle-aged, 
then I'm in what they call the Alta Caca division, <laughs> um, w- w- which is the old division. But when I was in uh, elementary school, Leonard Bernstein was on the television on Sundays with the New York Philharmonic doing something called Young People's Concerts. Now, this is, for all of us talking here, an obvious issue. Uh, But for many who may be watching this uh, session, uh, it's hard to believe that on Sundays, on CBS, after the NFL football game, was the New York Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this guy that looked a lot like me, in a way, uh, I should say looked like my dad, in a way. He was a middle-aged, young middle-aged Jewish guy. And they would pan the audience, and I would see a whole bunch of people that looked like me. Mm -hmm. And they were enthralled by his energy, by his knowledge, of course, by the beauty of the sound. And in those days, and this is interesting, and Stephanie knows this very well, she's made a, an important leadership career out of this. In those days, you could have a young person's concert talking about performance practice in the music of Joseph Haydn, mm. which he did. He did a whole 90 minutes on playing Haydn with the New York Philharmonic. Uh, Extraordinary. Or maybe it was a show about the harmonic changes of the Beatles with Bernstein at the piano playing the changes and singing. And Mike, it's hard to underestimate the people of my generation, the impact of all of that. But I think it was quite profound. Mm -hmm. And I even remember the incident Dear Mike, walking by my parents' black and white Zenith television, and I had only started music lessons not long before, and there was this guy on the television, and I found myself, I don't know, transfixed, if you will, I mean, sort of stuck. Like, look at those kids like me listening to this. They seem so jazzed about whatever this guy's talking about. And it wasn't even so much the content, even though I've mentioned that. It was, I hate to use the word delivery because that somehow weakens its significance. But it was his manner. It was the way he communicated, the way he spoke with people. The people being the kids in the audience. Uh and the relationship that seemed to happen when he would turn around and conduct those folks. So somewhere along the way, Mike, uh, in middle school, I just, you know, started conducting. And, you know, there was one day when the band director was ill or absent. And uh, I didn't go to a particularly significant public school system for music. And they never hired uh, a substitute. (laughs) So I don't have to tell you all. You can use your imagination. (laughs) And uh, by then I had joined the local youth orchestra. And uh, I took a glockenspiel mallet. And I stood up there and I started conducting whatever it was. 
you know, some, no doubtedly, you know, some march, you know, the Thunderer or, or something. <laughs> and uh, there was something about that that felt wonderful. Like so many uh, of you, of the plural you out there, I, I really had no musical influence. My, my, my grandmother was a pianist. But the environment in the house and my parents had had no music, had no art, really. I mean, they they owned a shoe store. You know, they were nearly middle class, but not quite Jewish merchants selling shoes. And uh, I think I was just always good in the back, whether it was timpani, <laughs> percussion, paying attention, or sitting at the shoe store in the back after school, watching my parents... <laughs> sell ladies' shoes. <laughs> uh, but all of that does something, I suspect, for your imagination. And I guess, to whatever boring degree, Mike, that's how it got started anyway. You know, I love that you you brought up the impact that, that Bernstein's Young People's Concerts had on you. And I think that that's something, it's certainly something that I think about, and I know that Jason thinks about a lot because Jason conducts all of our concerts for youth, I think it's something that Jason and I certainly work on, and I'm glad that you said it, that I think we greatly underappreciate what kids will like. We, like there's, there's a certain mm -hmm. element or there has been a tradition of playing down to kids, kind of dumbing down our art form so that kids will like it. And certainly in Bernstein's time, that wasn't the case. I mean, talking about, you know, that you could sit and for 90 minutes play and talk about the music of Haydn and keep kids engaged. If you, you say that now and it would be like, well, how, you know, no, we would never do that. They need to hear star Wars and they need to hear movie music. And, yeah. and it's something that Jason and I work on. I think you're absolutely right. It's a, a lot just in the delivery. I mean, you know, we as, as adults teach kids what they are, think that we need to teach kids what they're supposed to think and really don't allow kids to think for themselves in a lot of cases. Thank you, Stephanie. I, I, you know, the analogy might be if we did only this talking down, mm -hmm. wouldn't our English teachers be giving the kids comic books rather than Shakespeare? Absolutely. So what's the difference? Right. Uh, and, and, uh, it's more complicated now, of course, than during Bernstein's younger time, you know, with internet and more distractions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we are the tastemakers mm -hmm. for our audience, for our children, for each other. And uh, nothing wrong with Star Wars. I mean, no, I've absolutely seen, not. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen them all and nothing wrong with John Williams. Uh He's as good as it gets. But like you say, Steph, how do we deliver it? How do we use Beethoven as part of the concert with John Williams mm -hmm. so that there's a connection between thematic development and how you listen to the sounds and that the, the human condition is a limitless one, I believe. 
so this is great. This this leads me um, to another thought I had. You really at Rice and you know wherever you go, but especially Rice because that's uh, worked the most you know intimately with a, a single group of, of students at a time. You you set this culture which really I think it takes over the whole the whole school. But there's this culture that the experience of playing in orchestra um, is important not only just for being a successful musician, but in a way to be successful in life, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm so interested in how, you know, over the course of your career, I think the culture of, of professional orchestras has continually evolved. And I think what's going on now is actually pushing us in a positive way, um, you know, more rapidly forward than, than we might have have otherwise gone. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, in your teaching over the course of your career over more recent times, you know, what do you see um, as being the more sort of emerging, you know, skill sets that are, that are now suddenly even more important or maybe newly important to, to young musicians? That's a typically probing question from Michael Gordon, (laughs) (laughs) world-class flutist, ice skater, Man about town. I knew, um, I knew we would get to the ice skating at some point. Well, well I'll tell that story in a minute. But uh, I think you know there used to be this argument out there, and this maybe relates to Stephanie's keen question a moment ago regarding repertoire for young people. I've never been a big fan of the term, you know, kitty concert or lollipop concert. I've I've just always tried to think of them as young people's concerts or family concerts or whatever. Though I know uh, that sometimes we have to come up with titles that are uh, inventive and will draw people there more so, I guess. But there used to be this argument about classical music. And we all know this to be true. There's nothing wrong with classical music And there never has been anything wrong with classical music. And there's always going to be classical music. Nothing, no mindset, no uh, uh, cultural world, no president, no nothing can help us feel that we have to defend classical music. Mm -hmm. Now, we might have to defend or consider out of the box how we present it at times, given the ever-changing generations, given the ever-changing world. And I think, Mike, you're probably referencing, of course, this sort of COVID universe. But it's true that we do have to, as classical musicians or presenters or educational folk or young artists, uh, whatever, we we do have to find ways to connect and be accessible without any element of dumbing down or apologizing Mm -hmm. for classical music. Now, if that means that we need to have a film playing uh, while we perform the host planets that presents the great space discovery So be it. If we need to have in the lobby some of the most beautiful impressionist paintings from our local museum 
just in the lobby for people to get a taste for a concert that has La Mer. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. If we need to talk to the audience before we're playing any piece, it just doesn't have to be a piece that was written two hours ago. I mean, it could be Beethoven's first symphony. We should do that. And something I've learned during this pandemic, and some of it I've learned from you, Mike, uh, is watching your videos and the extraordinarily engaging element of it uh, that you have done and you have become obviously a sort of tech whiz genius superstar at the same time. (laughs) And this is something Miss Bicey, your teacher, and I have spoken about, like, what's up with Mike Gordon? My God. <laughs> You've uh, been saying that for about 20 years, by the way. Yes, <laughs> yeah, right. It's not right. Just in a different context. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think another thing that the pandemic has taught professional orchestras is that there has to be a way to appeal to everyone in certain ways without lessening the power of beauty without lessening the essence of live music, even though we might not be completely live. And I think this is something we're going to use. I mean, even this event, pluses and minuses, I mean, to have all of us together talking, I mean, would have certainly cost at least one airplane ticket and a, no- a night or two in one of your beautiful hotels. Mm-hmm. Now, we, you know, we could save money and have us all together and have people listening, I suspect. There must be someone listening to this besides, <laughs> Mike's besides mom. us. We have three <laughs> listeners, Larry. Okay. Three. Okay. Two, that's wonderful. Two are Stephanie's children. Yes. Uh, <laughs> one is Mike's mom. You know, th- that's great. But I do think with every challenge brings opportunity for creative thought. And I know this first semester at Shepherd at Rice, uh, we did not meet as an orchestra. Mm. It was a chamber music only school in person uh, with probably about 75% or so of the students in person. Understandably, there's a continued challenge with uh, international students uh, but they provided really good they provided chamber music opportunities if you can believe it for the online students sure uh, taught by the best I mean Jackie Parker John Kamura Parker did did uh, string piano chamber music Ben Caymans our great bassoon teacher teacher of of your principal bassoonist, for example, did the wind chamber music online. But this next term, um, we've created four 28-member chamber orchestras. Oh, cool. uh, they will be, of course, socially distanced and mm, masked and with blowers, so we can only rehearse 55 minutes and the blowers clean the room out. They've changed everything. They've extended the stage. So there's more room for all of us. Uh, Students are tested weekly at Rice University. Wow. Faculty twice a week. And 
I will be able to go in uh, masked and do these programs over the semester, as we say, God willing. Uh, that is, if we all stay well, the students and the faculty and the environment. Uh, so you make the most out of what's given to you with your own, hopefully, a creative conspiracy with others uh, who can put their minds together. I think that's awesome. And I'm so glad that you spoke about what what your plans were, because everybody is doing something different. And um, I'm so glad that your students and your faculty are going to get back to somewhat some semblance of normalcy, which is really important to those young performers, for yes. sure. I, I, there's no doubt that there isn't anything more important than the safety. Sure. I, I don't know that there's even anything in second place. Mm. But for a school like ours, where a certain number of students come to get learned and educated to do what the members of the Kansas City Symphony are doing, uh, we had to find some way for them to get engaged somehow with wonderful repertoire, even though it isn't Bruckner, Mahler, Strauss, there's other good, great repertoire that can help them. And I try to look at this period as a transition back to the good old days. And maybe the good old days will be even better now because of what we've all endured. Sure. So I'm curious, um, you know, thinking about things that we need to adapt to, um, and maybe Jason and Mike can weigh in, weigh in on this as well, but having been, having worked in a professional setting now for, Lord, I'm middle-aged now too, Jason, look at this. But, you know, there are things that you are taught in in a conservatory setting, primarily music, you know, your performance-related, but there are so many other things that are important in having and retaining a job in a professional orchestra. And a lot of that stuff isn't, you know, it might be taught in your private, you know, in your private lesson weekly, you know, just one-on-one -on -one with your teacher, but kind of seeing as how music is evolving and the orchestra setting is evolving, are there things you feel like should be taught Right. In, a, in a more like official capacity in the university. And I'm talking about things like, like public speaking. I mean, being able to actually sit down and engage with somebody is something that you have, you know, you have to learn how to do or right. resume writing, you know, things, things like that, you know, just from, from all of your perspectives, are there things that, that students should be learning how to do that we're not really teaching them in school? Stephanie, thank you for that question. Since the time that you and Mike uh, commenced, mm -hmm. uh, I would say about 15 years ago, give or take, our dean, new dean, who's been with us 18 years, instituted a whole phylum of classes called Career Development Classes. Oh, very cool. And put in charge of it Janet Rarick, uh, who Perfect. two of you know as a wind chamber music coach, professional oboist, and, and brilliant mind. Mm -hmm. um, and the classes include things like 
uh, performance on stage, uh, resume writing, presentation, what to do after I'm done at school. These are the topics. Mm -hmm. They're semester-long classes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, How to interview for a university position. Uh, And these classes are electives in the graduate school, Shepherd School. And it's not just that they're electives and someone can take it rather than the music of Ockingham, but (laughs) they are are, um, very popular. Yeah. Uh, And they're taught by a variety of people, uh, courses on uh, mental practice, uh, you know, et, et cetera, the art of chamber music coaching, uh, all of the things or most all of the things that I think you're referencing absolutely, are absolutely yeah. necessities. And I'm happy, proud to say that we're doing that um, and have been for a while. But I truly do wish it was happening uh, while you guys were there. But yeah. this is part of uh the continuum isn't it of of still trying to develop as a person as a school as an environment uh and of course during all of this challenging issues that have gone up uh i'm proud and happy to say uh diversity committees have finally been created within the shepherd school Mm -hmm. of current faculty uh students of color uh, graduate students of color, uh, and finally Larry Ratcliffe finally is starting to do uh, the BIPOC repertoire that I should have been doing for 35, 40 years. Uh, my bad. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it now. Sure. So we're, we're all trying to get our acts together before mm-hmm. it's too late. That's great. <laughs> Um, Larry, I, I don't want to completely shift gears here, but we just a little bit ago we were talking about Mike Gordon and figure skating. Do you have a story or something to tell us? <laughs> well, um, our listeners want to know what is what is the story about Mike? Well, I'm going to sit down and, and tell you about it. Um, <laughs> Are you going to grab a, a pipe and a, a, a glass of whiskey? We might need well, to make this a separate episode, but go ahead. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'll just do it briefly. And I can't remember. I think Mike told me sort of angularly about it. Or maybe it was the principal flute. Yes, it was the principal flute of Rhode Island Philharmonic. A wonderful woman called Susan Thomas. And I was uh, back there for one of my concert weeks. And I said, you know, there's this uh, very gifted young, somewhat unusual uh, (laughs) uh, flute student from Rhode Island. And she said, oh, you must mean Mike Gordon. I said, yeah. She said, did you know that he was a championship ice skater? No, I didn't know that. Uh, (laughs) Mike never told me, nor knowing him, you know, would he have? And... I was astonished. Um, And I think when I went back to Houston the next week, uh, Jason, and I saw Mike, I I said, you know, Sue Thomas 
sends her best. And Mike, of course, said very kind and loving, wonderful things about Susan, which is true. She's a great flutist. And I suspect a good teacher. Uh, I said, she mentioned off the cuff that you've done some ice skating. <laughs> and I said, but Mike, you don't actually look like, uh, you know, your standard ice skater at the time. <laughs> he said, well, it's about the legs. I remember this conversation. He says it's about having strong legs. And, and, and that's what, you know, elevates you. And uh, so that might have something to do with this Brian Bortano <laughs> reference. But I, I, now, I now pass this back to Michael Gordon. Oh He's my. crying. He oh might have to God. gather himself. Yeah, I'm gonna need I'm gonna need Tim to help me out here in the posts. But uh, oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> okay, here we go. Um, yes, well, I, I, to the best of my recollection, and this was a long time ago. This this story is uh, is absolutely accurate. And of course, I I studied for a few years uh, with Susan Thomas back in Rhode Island, and so she knew me and. And, you know, one of the things everyone should know about Larry is that uh, once it happens that he learns something interesting about you, <laughs> such as this, he will never let you or anyone else forget it, no matter the context. <laughs> and uh, I have I have vivid recollections of, uh, of uh, receiving loving and yet truthful and also specific... Uh, suggestions in in open, you know, symphony or chamber orchestra rehearsals regarding my performance that would be ever so cleverly uh, spiced with with a figure skating reference of sort of sorts, <laughs> such as you know, could you please lead your section with your toe picks here, Michael? Or <laughs> or you know, I love that you're playing this softly, but could you be less icy? You know, all all. All, uh, all things of that manner. So, yes, it's a true story. I did, uh, I did used to figure skate, and in fact, I can't recall if I've told this story on the podcast before. But um, very early on uh, in my Kansas City Symphony tenure, I we were actually invited to. Uh, there's an outdoor ice terrace, uh, Larry, at um, at a shopping mall downtown here in Kansas City, the Crown Center ice terrace and we were invited there to come skating at six o'clock in the morning because it was the holidays and good morning america was doing a feature on kansas city and some of our brass players were going to be there to play and they invited anyone else to come and skate so it looked as if people in kansas city just routinely went skating at six o'clock on a monday morning <laughs> and uh, so i went down there with a couple of friends i was brand new in the orchestra and of course all of our senior management were there and out comes the new principal flute, you know, whirling around. <laughs> and everyone's doing triple axles. Yeah, everyone's watches. looking at and you know, Larry, you um you you beautifully and lovingly and elegantly um uh described my physique in contrast to the uh typical figure skater, but but of course I'm comfortable enough to say that, you know, watching a short, fat, balding uh flute player skate is not not a normal thing to have happen. So, <laughs> well, I can say that in those days you might have been short, you were not fat, and you were not balding, but you could really play the flute, and you were a wonderful guy, 
in spite of some of these emotional problems that you continue to have. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I right. love it. Well, uh, you know, we could we could sit here and do this for a couple hours more, and we may just we may have to have a, a sequel, or perhaps make this somewhat of a, a, a trilogy over the course of uh, Beethoven walks into a bar as this podcast continues. Although I don't know, they may cancel us after me telling this figure skating story. I have no idea. <laughs> but um, here uh, here on the podcast, and I don't know that I've warned you about this. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I didn't. We, uh, we always ask two questions, uh, which are required. They're in the bylaws, and there was a writer in your contract. It's in very fine print, uh, so that it's hard to see. But um, th- these two questions are absolutely vital, and we are not allowed by law to end the show without asking them. So, so first, uh, you know, we call this Beethoven walks into a bar for a reason. So the first question is, what is your favorite beverage of choice, whether it be alcoholic, non-alcoholic, coffee, water, juice, bourbon? Uh, And related to that, if you were to walk into a bar with Mr. Beethoven, and sit down and have his beverage of your choice uh, with him. What what might you want to ask him? Well, I I uh, I did not see this fine print, uh, <laughs> but um, my current uh, beverage of choice, Mike. Uh, thank you for the probing question. Uh, I, I would say is green tea, uh, and um, uh, decaf. Uh, green tea. Uh, I'm on a bit of a health kick, I guess you would say. Uh, if you'd asked me that question some years ago, there might have been a different uh, response. You know, it's always interesting because I do think it's things conductors do think about uh, regarding your second question. I'm sure it's something Jason's thought about in Maestro Stern. If you could, what would you ask composer X about and which composers would you really want to talk to about it? Beethoven being such a complex human being and, and personality, I, I would guess I, I would want to know how in the midst of his most depressing challenges, deafness, love affair gone in flames. How did he manage to write some of his most joyous music? How how could a Beethoven Eighth Symphony exist in the midst of the end of the beloved affair, Mm -hmm. the dearly beloved, and in the throes of his total inability to really hear outside noises or sounds. It's a great answer. It's a great it's a answer. Great question. Well, Larry, it has been such a pleasure and honor to speak with you today. And uh, it's great to see you again. We've loved this conversation and getting to know you and your career more. Um, one other thing we like to do at the end of each episode is recommend some listening for our three mm-hmm. listeners, for Stephanie's children and Mike's mom. <laughs> and, um, so uh, I'm going to start it off, if you guys don't mind. Uh, you know, we're actually recording this episode the day after 
the riots that overtook the U.S. Capitol building. And so yesterday was a very tough day for our country, a very dark and sad day. And um, anytime we, we have a moment of darkness like that, I, I like to turn to music as a source of comfort and peace. And so I found myself late last night in the wee hours of the morning so that I could fall asleep uh, finding some great music to listen to. And, and one of those things I listened to was the Dona Nobis Pacem from Bach's B minor mass, which is for the most glorious minutes of music ever written. Uh, and a message, of course, of grant us peace, which is what we need more now than ever. Um, so I listened to probably three or four different versions of it last night before I went to bed. And of course, my my favorite version is probably always going to involve John Elliott Gardner. I just yeah. think he's a master of Bach and, and many things. Um, so I, I encourage you to find the YouTube link of, of him conducting this glorious last movement of the, of the B minor mass, one of the great achievements in Western civilization. Mike, what do you have? Well, uh, so, uh, you know, in a professional orchestra, we prepare a program, you know, for a, a subscription weekend, you know, in a few days and, and in school, you know, that process happens not necessarily in that many more hours actually, but it's spread out often over the course of, you know, a month or so. Uh, and so you really live with a piece of music, uh, for a long time. And then you genuinely, generally just perform it once. Uh, and so those become really landmark, uh, concerts for a young person. And, uh, I was fortunate enough to have many of those with Larry, but, uh, one, that always sticks out to me uh, was La Mer. And the first time I played Debussy's La Mer uh, was with you, Larry. And uh, subsequently, every time I play it, that that's where I go back to in my head, was playing it with you, learning that piece uh, from you, whatever year that would have been uh, in my time at Rice. So I'm going to recommend La Mer today, speaking of joyous and beautiful music, uh, because it's some of my favorite music to play. It brings back uh, really, really special memories for me. And uh, speaking of Mr. Bernstein, as we did before, I found a wonderful recording uh, of his uh, La Mer. It's on YouTube with, uh, of course, the New York Philharmonic, and we'll put the link in the show notes. So I actually also went back to my, my Rice days and also my San Antonio Symphony days, um, but the first time I ever played Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet was with Larry and the Shepherd Orchestra. And it remains in my top three um, music, not just to play, but also to listen to um, of all time. It's a, an incredible collection of um, music from uh, the ballet, Romeo and Juliet. And um, I just remember, I can so vividly remember Larry's um, face in the death of Tybalt, <laughs> when you get to the end and we have the 12, or how many, is it 12? 13. 13. I think it's 13. Yeah. Um, and just like, it was so intense and just, it's one of the the great joys of performing with Larry is he's so incredibly invested in um, what's happening on stage. And you're not making any sound, but you're making, you are causing the sounds <laughs> that come out of the orchestra just in your, your involvement and enthusiasm. And so I'm including a recording of Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, something I still adore to listen to and perform um, when I can these days. Well, you may remember way back in episode two, we talked about composer Adam Schoenberg, but hadn't yet figured out how to incorporate guests into the podcast. 
Well, next week, we get the opportunity to chat with him about his current orchestral, film and TV projects, recording with the Kansas City Symphony, and most importantly, aged tequila. Next week on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. 